The boy with the fair hair lowered himself down the last few feet of rock and began to pick his way toward the lagoon. Though he'd taken off his school sweater and trailed it now from one hand, his gray shirt stuck to him and his hair was plastered on his forehead. All around him the long scar smashed into the jungle was a bath of heat. He was clambering heavily among the creepers and broken trunks when a bird, a vision of red and yellow, flashed upwards with a witch-like cry, and this cry was echoed by another. Hi, it said. Wait a minute. The undergrowth at the side of the scar was shaken, and a multitude of raindrops fell, pattering. Wait a minute, the voice said. I got caught up. The fair boy stopped, and he jerked his stockings with an automatic gesture that made the jungle seem for a moment like the home counties. The voice spoke again. I can hardly move with all these creeper things. The owner of the voice came backening out of the undergrowth, so that the twigs scratched on the greasy windbreaker. The naked crooks of his knees were plump, caught and scratched by thorns. He bent down, removed the thorns carefully, and turned around. He was shorter than the fair boy and very fat. He came forward, searching out of the safe lodgments for his feet, and then looked up through thick spectacles. Where's the man with the megaphone? The fair boy shook his head. This is an island. At least, I think it's an island. That's a reef out to sea. Perhaps there aren't any grown-ups anywhere. The fat boy startled. There was that pilot, but he wasn't in the passenger cabin. He was up front. The fair boy was peering out the reef through screwed-up eyes. All them other kids... The fat boy went on. Some of them must have got out. They must have. Mustn't they? The fair boy began to pick his way casually as possible toward the water. He tried to be offhand and not too obviously uninterested, but the fat boy hurried after him. Aren't there any grown-ups at all? I don't think so. The fair boy said this solemnly, but then the delight of a realized ambition came over him. In the middle of the scar, he stood on his head and grinned at the reversed fat boy. No grown-ups! The fat boy thought for a moment. That pilot! The fair boy allowed his feet to come down, and he sat on the steamy earth. He must have flown out after he dropped us. He couldn't land here, not the plane with the wheels. We was attacked. He'll be back all right. The fat boy shook his head. When we was coming down, I looked through one of them windows. I saw the other part of the plane. There was flames coming out of it. He looked up and down the scar. And this is what the cabin done. The fair boy reached out and touched the jagged end of a trunk. For a moment, he looked interested. What happened to it, he asked. Where's it got now? The storm dragged it out to sea. It wasn't half dangerous with all them trunks falling. There must have been some kids still in it. He hesitated for a moment and then spoke again. What's your name? Ralph. The fat boy waited to be asked his name in turn, but this proffer of acquaintance was not made. The fair boy called Ralph, smiled vaguely, stood up, and began to make his way once more toward the lagoon. The fat boy hung steadily at his shoulder. I expect there's a lot more of us scattered about. You haven't seen any others, have you? 
Ralph shook his head and increased his speed, then he tripped over a branch and came down with a crash. The fat boy stood by him, breathing hard. My auntie told me not to run, he explained, on account of my asthma. Asthma? That's right. Can't catch my breath. Was the only boy in school that had asthma, said the fat boy with a touch of pride, and I've been wearing specs since I was three. He took off his glasses and held them out to Ralph, blinking and smiling, and then he started to wipe them against his grubby windbreaker. An expression of pain and inward concentration altered the pale contours of his face. He smeared the sweat from his cheeks and quickly adjusted the spectacles on his nose. Them fruit, he glanced around the scar. Them fruit, he said, I expect. He put on his glasses, waded away from Ralph and crouched down among the tangled foliage. I'll be out again in just a minute. So that's it. That's the beginning of Lord of the Flies, the introduction, the first few pages, the first five minutes. And what does it tell you? What, what does the introduction give you insight into the story? That's where we're going to start. But before we start, we're going to ease into this a little bit. Um, I haven't quite decided how I want to do these these book clubs, this the book club podcast. I haven't quite decided what they're going to be. When I did these novels in school, in, as a teacher, these novels would take us three weeks, four weeks, five six weeks sometimes depending on the book and obviously we're not going to cram that much information into a into one or two podcasts which is what i expect these to be so i'm going to try to condense these books into one podcast or or maybe two depending on the time because I, I feel like, I don't know this yet because I haven't done one of these yet, but I, I feel like I'm going to take more time than I, f- I think I'm going to when it comes to these novels. Because I think that understanding the novel is paramount to, to the purpose of reading it. And a lot of times when people read these novels, they kind of just read through them and they don't understand any of it. Or if they do understand it, they they don't understand the whole thing. They just get the story and they don't quite get what's underneath the story, which is kind of what we're going for here. So, The Lord of the Flies is a novel written by a British author named William Golding, and he wrote it in 19... 54. And the the basic idea of Lord of the Flies is a novel about civilization versus or and savagery. He he was writing about the difference between what we think civilized man is and the the savage primitive reality of what mankind actually is if you remove mankind from the framework of civilization and that is the that's the basic 
conceptualization of the novel. So, so to to kind of understand where we're starting from, I need to kind of tell you something going in that you should know, but you might not quite understand yet. Maybe you know it, but you can't put it into words. And here, here it is. It's human beings have a certain duality of human nature. We are capable of great and morally good selflessness. And we are also capable of evil that is so unspeakable that I can't even bring it up to the fullest extent on this podcast. Think of the worst thing you can possibly imagine. Do you have it? Do you have that in your mind? It's worse than that. So, so much worse than that. And that should give you pause. It, It should give you chills to understand that. Um, and this is something we've understood for a long time. Uh, go back to Aristotle or the Greeks. Not just Aristotle, but he's a good example of the Greek philosophers. And he explained humanity, the idea of the human soul, as a man driving a chariot drawn by two horses. And one horse represented good and divinity and the other horse represented evil. One horse pulled towards heaven, and the other horse pulled towards, you know, Hades, hell, the the earth. And humanity is left suspended between these two horses and the chariot. Now later, Christian theologians explained human nature kind of the same way as being made in the image of God, but fallen and cursed with sin. Uh, And if you want another example, the there's Native American kind of mythology that describes human nature as a a straight path and a crooked path. And that's because the a lot of the Native American tribes didn't have the same concept of evil that you have but that's kind of a conversation for another day whatever the cause of this in our nature it's a fundamental observable historically proven undeniable truth it is a truth and it might seem kind of silly to harp on this fact but some people disregard it and they try to ignore it and those people are wrong They've always been wrong. They will always be wrong. Until the end of time, they will be wrong. And if you're one of those people sitting out there in the audience, silently disagreeing with me, let me be the first to tell you, I don't know, metaphorically to your face, that you are wrong. You are provably, systematically, laughably wrong. You, personally, individually, are capable of the most sinister evil that has ever existed. This isn't theoretical, it's not theological. I mean it. You are capable of great good 
of, of being a great person, you're also capable of the worst things you can possibly imagine. You're capable of both of them at the same time, always until you die. You aren't one or the other. You are both. And I'm sorry to bear you this bad news, but that is is the truth of human existence. And that is kind of the platform that we are jumping off of when we jump into the world of Lord of the Flies. Because what I just read to you in the first five minutes, that opens up the novel. And that gives you... It gives you a vision of where you're starting from. And where you're starting from is this perspective of Ralph, the fair-haired boy. As the novel opens, you, you find yourself in the shoes of Ralph, who is this boy who finds himself on an island. And he's on this island because he was on a plane that has crashed onto this island. That, uh, that's what the scar comes from. These boys who, who you're starting to meet were on a plane and that plane crashed. And that plane crashed onto this island, which is uh, logically somewhere in, in the you know, in the ocean, maybe the South Pacific. I think, I think usually it's, it's thought of as being in the, in the South Pacific or the South Atlantic, somewhere very remote. The boys find themselves on this island and you find yourself in Ralph's shoes, looking through, through the, through the eyes of Ralph onto this island. And in the first few lines in the first opening of the book the tone the the tenor of the novel is kind of bright and warm and exciting you see ralph he is walking on around on this island and the first thing you see is this kind of beautiful tropical bird that flies off and ralph views his situation he views the island as this sort of paradise. And as that chapter continues on, that that continues. Like he, he views the island as a paradise. And he meets this other boy, the fat boy, who you met in the first five minutes. And that kid's name is Piggy. That's not his real name. That's his kind of nickname for the novel. And it's the name that children picked on him and like jokingly called him at his former school they called him piggy and he he confides in ralph you know very early in the book right after kind of where i stopped reading he confides in ralph that that's what kids used to call him and he doesn't care what anybody calls him as long as it's not piggy and then ralph very kind of i don't know kind of shittily brings that up and from then on that boy is referred to as piggy for the remainder of the novel even though that's not what he wants to be called um and it doesn't paint a great picture of ralph right off the bat but it's very 
it's understandable that's the kind of that if you understand adolescent males it makes sense because that is who piggy's going to be if you are kind of the fat nerdy kid the rest of the kids are going to call you that they're they're going to be real about it and call you what you are and so in the first few pages of the novel you have ralph and you have piggy Ralph is the main character. Ralph is the protagonist. And he stands on this island, which is this kind of beautiful paradise island. And this entire novel is full of biblical imagery. And symbolically, it is, in the first chapter, a sort of Garden of Eden. And that's where Ralph finds himself he finds himself at kind of the the beginning of creation in this sort of garden of eden of mankind and the people you meet are ralph the protagonist piggy who is the second person you meet in the novel who is going to interact with with ralph and everyone else a lot and then you meet several other boys and the first one that we meet after the first the first two that I talked about in the introduction, is a kid named Jack. And Jack is a tall, awkward, lanky ginger who is the the leader of a group of choir boys. And you start to get the idea that all the boys on this island have come from uh, schools. And most of the schools seem like military type boarding schools and so even though jack is kind of this uh i don't know the the leader of some choir it's not i don't know in 1954 when when golding's writing this novel it's not kind of a sissified thing to be uh, a choir boy as it is in 2022 so when you meet jack he he's not He's kind of tall and awkward and ginger, of course. Let's not forget that he's ginger. But uh, he, he's not like a, a sissy. And the choir boys aren't kind of painted as sissified boys, which would, if this was written in 2022 and you had like a bunch of choir boys, they would be thought of as, as you know, not very tough. They would be thought of as sissies. And so you meet Jack. And with Jack comes a few others, one of which is Simon. And Simon is a small, younger boy of the choir, and he's very quiet, and you don't see a lot out of him in the first few pages. Next, you have Roger, also kind of one of the smaller boys, also very quiet, kind of like Simon. Again, you don't see much of him either. Uh... The other one that you meet is Maurice, and Maurice is larger than than Simon Roger, maybe a little bit older, uh, but one of the choir boys. Uh, And two more that are important that you meet very early are Sam and Eric. And Sam and Eric are a pair of twins that for, in, in the first chapter they are called Sam and Eric, and as the book goes along, they begin to kind of morph into this single unit every time they are 
they are referred to. Um, but I, I single them out because these people are important to the progression of the novel. You have Ralph, the main character. You have Piggy, the supporting character. You have Jack. You have Simon. You have Roger. You have Maurice. And you have Sam and Eric. And those aren't the only boys that you meet. There's a lot of other boys. There are a lot of other boys that are younger. Every boy that you meet on the island is between the ages of, let's say, 12 years old, 13 years old, maybe, down to about 6 years old. And so you have older boys that are up to about 13 and you have younger boys that are down all the way to to six you know very very young there are no girls on the island there this is only a book about young boys and that is that's important and i'll explain why it's important later also in the first chapter you have the introduction of the island and the places on the island and the first place you see is Ralph on his way to the lagoon and the lagoon if you understand kind of how I don't know geography works on an island a lagoon is a sort of protected cove from the ocean it's not part of the ocean but it is like on the island it's this big open kind of piece of the island that is is water and it's the place the boys go to kind of swim and hang out and be protected from the ocean next to the lagoon is a large platform of granite rock and the platform and the lagoon are going to be important to to the story as we go ahead the next place that you see is the beach down from the platform and the lagoon you have the beach that touches the edge of the ocean in the center of the island, you have a large mountain. There is this, this elevation in the center of the island that is this kind of big rocky mountain in the middle. Also another kind of geographically important aspect of the book. And then on the corner of the island, you have a, a second, much smaller island that is called Castle Rock. And Castle Rock is one of these kind of rock formations that you've seen probably in like a computer background where like you have the island and then there's this kind of rock arch over to another smaller island made of rock. And it looks like a castle with a bridge that connects it to the main island. And I bring it up because this is another geographically important part of the island. Next, you have kind of things that the boys have that become very symbolic and important. And the first one is the conch. And I think this is actually pronounced conch, but I've always heard it as pronounced as the conch. And it's a, it's a shell that the boys find in the lagoon, that Ralph and Piggy find in the lagoon. It's like a pink, it's a big pink shell that the boys find. 
and if you blow into the the side of it you can make a, a noise like a horn and in chapter one ralph uses it to blow into with the direction of piggy he uses it to blow into and make a sound like a, a sort of trumpet or horn to gather all the boys together for their for the first kind of meeting and so the conch immediately becomes this symbol for order it becomes this symbol for assembly for for government is what the conch becomes is a symbol for government and order and ralph blows it and all the boys come the next thing that is kind of important on the island in chapter one is piggy's glasses piggy of course piggy wears glasses big thick spectacles and the glasses are always tied to piggy and they they symbolize knowledge and technology as a as it uh, as it applies to kind of a human civilization and then the last item the last thing in chapter one that you see that's going to become a symbol is the knife and the knife is something that jack has and jack's knife becomes very early a symbol for violence and savagery it's something that jack is always kind of showing off and he's showing it off because he is kind of insecure and so the the knife becomes the symbol of violence and savagery and the entirety of the book is going to be this struggle between civilization and order the conch and savagery and violence the knife and that is the the tone and tenor of the novel as it opens up in chapter one you you, you immediately understand that this is going to be a a biblical symbolic story of humanity and human nature as a struggle between civilization and savagery uh order and chaos that is what lord of the flies is about it is about the struggle between order and chaos and that that is kind of the opening of chapter one and that's what you see in chapter one and at the end of chapter one you have this this the conch is blown and there's a meeting of all the boys and you meet all the boys and ralph and jack and simon and that's important to remember which three it is ralph jack and simon at the end of chapter one go on this kind of journey to to the mountain to get on top of the mountain to confirm that they are on an island and that they are alone and that no one is kind of there to rescue them and so chapter one ends with the confirmation that the boys are alone and are on an island and they they need to figure out a way to be rescued by the outside world and this is the thing that's not quite 
talked about very much and not understood very well as it relates to the novel is is what is going on in the outside world. Why were these boys on a plane in the first place? And why were they why did they crash land on this island? And what is going on in the outside world? And this is hinted at a few times in chapter one, but it's never really dwelt on for the entirety of the novel. But even though it's not talked about a lot, it is very important to understand for the novel. And what's going on is that in the outside world, there is a war going on. And it is, is, it's not just a, a regular war, it is an atomic war. It is a dystopian war. There are nuclear missiles being fired by different countries and it's hinted that in the outside world a lot of the civilized world of europe has been destroyed the boys flew out on a plane from london and right after they left london was destroyed by an atomic weapon and it's understood that several other cities have also been destroyed by uh, atomic bombs and so what we're seeing in this world of lord of the flies is the outside world that the children are trying to be rescued by is in the midst of a existential dystopian atomic war and that's something that's always kind of glossed over when it comes to this novel and i feel like it's something that you, you really need to understand and and focus on is what's going on in the outside world is this horrible existential war like a, a world war three an apocalyptic situation is underway in the world that the boys have left and the reason that's important is going to become clear as we get deeper into the novel, but you need to understand that going into chapter one. And I am already 30 minutes in, and I realize that I'm just now through chapter one, and this book has 12 chapters, which makes me think that Lord of the Flies is going to be a at least a two-part podcast so it's probably good that I started recording it tonight because this is going to be a longer form type type of podcast. But that is the that's the end of chapter one is the boys realize they're on an island. We meet all the boys. We understand the problems. We see the symbolic kind of items that are going to drive the story and the characters that are going to drive the story. And we we see that the the outside world is in shambles it is it is in the midst of an atomic war and mankind is literally tearing itself apart so this novel of lord of the flies fits into the category of a dystopian novel but often it's not quite understood or taught that way but it always should be it should be understood as a dystopian novel and I don't understand how anybody teaches or reads this book without that understanding. And that's going to, the reason I think that is going to become much more clear as we get into the novel, as we get into chapter two, which we're going to get into next. And I'm, 
I mean next. Like I'm going to start talking about it right away because I feel like I need to get through at least a couple of chapters before we go into part two. So chapter two, what happens in chapter two? Let's dig into that. So chapter two opens up with this meeting. Ralph blows the conch and the boys have a sort of organized meeting of of structuring their society uh, it, it's the formation of a government in effect that's how chapter two kind of starts out and ralph tells the boys that him and him and uh, jack and simon have been up to the mountain and they are on an island and nobody is coming to save them they are there by themselves and if they want to be rescued they're going to have to do something they're going to have to to figure out a way to get themselves rescued and that's how chapter two opens up it is this it's this organization of the society around the conch around order and it's decided by the boys that they have to vote, they have to decide on a chief. And interestingly, as soon as the, the question comes up of a chief, Jack puts himself forward as like, I, I am the man to be chief. I am the leader of the choir. I can sing C sharp. I am the, the most able. But Jack is not the one who most of the children vote for. Ralph emerges as the the leader, the one that everybody votes for. And he emerges as the leader only because he is the one that gathered them all together. He blew the conch. And the conch immediately holds this sort of power. And all the, the younger boys realize that... Uh, Jack, or that Ralph is the one who should be leader because he's the one that gathered them all together and blew the conch. And it's important to note that Piggy is actually the one that that showed Ralph how he should blow the conch. And Piggy's the one that taught Ralph how to blow the conch. And this is interesting because Piggy... Piggy is the smartest boy so far. That that as far as all we have seen so far, Piggy is the most intellectual on the island. He's the the most intelligent boy on the island. But Piggy obviously can't be the leader because Piggy is fat and Piggy has asthma. Therefore, Piggy can't blow the conch and Piggy can't be a leader because he's not. He doesn't have the ingredients. So Ralph emerges as the leader, and the kids vote on it, and immediately Jack is jealous of Ralph. But Ralph does something without really realizing it. He he gives Jack a sort of uh, a power. He he says he says to Jack that Jack is going to be in charge of the choir, of course, and the choir is going to be the hunters of the island 
um, because they they found pigs, or they they know that there are pigs on the island because that happened in chapter one, and so so Ralph tells Jack, yes, you know I am the chief, but you are going to be the leader of the hunters, and so Ralph kind of immediately shows some very some very good leadership in understanding that he needs to give Jack something. Because Jack is not happy about not being chosen as as chief right off the bat, um, and immediately at at this meeting, very early in chapter two, you have the introduction of the the main point of contention for the novel, the the introduction of the antagonist of the novel. Because every story has a protagonist, the main character, the good guy. And every story has an antagonist, the bad guy, the thing that the good guy is struggling against. And this bad guy, this antagonist, is introduced by one of the very young children. And later in the novel, the young children will be called the little ones, or the little ones. And it's one of these kids who comes forward who who explains, who introduces the antagonist. And in the novel, this boy is only referred to as the boy with the mulberry birthmark. He's not named. He's just a young boy with no name who has a, a kind of wine, you know, mulberry colored birthmark on his face. And he introduces the main conflict of the novel, which is the beast. And he explains that the little children are afraid of a beast. And he can't even get the words out. He has to speak through Piggy. He explains what he's talking about. And Piggy kind of uh, listens to him and uh, interprets what he's saying and relays the information. Uh, He speaks through Piggy, and Piggy tells the boys kind of through these whispered and hushed words that the boy with the mulberry birthmark is introducing this, this thing. And this thing is the beast. And he says that the beast is thought to be or said to be a serpent, a giant snake. And it's this thing that frightens the children. This is the fear. It's the fear of the novel. And Ralph immediately tries to convince the boys through a a sort of logic and reason that there's no such thing as the beast. Because the little boys believe in this this giant snake that's sneaking around at night and ralph tries to convince them like you guys are just kind of thinking of this snake because at night you're seeing you're seeing and hearing things but it doesn't really work the 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 children on the island all kind of immediately latch on to this fear of the beast and that's going to be very important i mean biblical imagery right off the bat, if we're talking about the Garden of Eden and paradise, it it makes sense that the beast 
is said to be a serpent. Because the beast, the serpent, in the Garden of Eden is the thing that makes mankind fall. Hint, this is going to be important later. So remember that the beast is said to be a serpent. Okay, so next you have Jack and his hunters. And Jack emerges as this leader in his own right next to Ralph. And he is the leader of the hunters. He wields the knife. And he takes on this masculine role within this emerging tribe. And he, and this isn't something that Ralph kind of uh, intends to happen or anybody really kind of intends, but that's the role that Jack takes on as the masculine hunter male role in the tribe, in the tribal structure, which doesn't make a lot of sense because part of the reason that Ralph is voted for chief is because Ralph is the largest boy. Ralph is broad. Ralph is strong. Ralph is, uh, in the book, it explains him as like, when he grows up, he's going to he's gonna be a boxer. He has like a boxer's physique. He is strong. He's broad. He's somebody with broad shoulders and fair features. He's, he's attractive and strong. But... Because he takes this this caretaker role of, of chief of all the boys and especially the little ones, he takes this this kind of uh, motherly role of taking care of the young children, and he gives Jack the role of hunting, which is the more kind of masculine male role in the relationship. And we're going to get deeper into that as the novel goes along. Uh, there... <clears throat> There has to be a, a masculine and feminine, feminine element if we're talking about mankind and human nature and the Garden of Eden and, and all of that. Even though there's only boys on the island, there's going to be this kind of masculine versus feminine struggle, and we'll, we'll get into that as we go along. The next thing we see. The next thing we see in Chapter 2 is that the conch is fragile the order that the boys have built is immediately shown if you're reading and understanding to be fragile because it symbolizes order and a sort of government and it holds a power the conch holds immediately a sort of power over the children and it, it facilitates the creation of rules and the creation of order for the group but we see very early on that the power of the conch, the power of the, the order, is very fragile. And it really only holds power as long as the children want it to hold power. And it depends on who's holding it. So in chapter 2, rules are made. And one of the rules is whoever is holding the conch is able to speak without being interrupted and the only person who is kind of legally allowed to interrupt someone holding the conch is the chief which would be ralph but it becomes apparent way early that uh, the rules are not strictly followed because when piggy 
holds the conch, the conch doesn't seem to matter that much because Piggy gets interrupted. And Piggy gets interrupted because Piggy does not have the the respect of the tribe in the way that Ralph does. And so you see very early on that the conch is only powerful if the person holding it is powerful. And so they have this big meeting, this big call to order, and Ralph explains that if the boys want to be rescued, the most important thing is to, to have a signal fire. Because if there are ships on the ocean looking for them, the only thing those ships are going to see is smoke. And so Ralph comes up with the idea of, hey, we need to start a fire. And as we all know, fire is fun, fire is exciting, and this gins up all the children into a kind of fever. And all the children run to the summit of the mountain, and they start gathering dead wood from one side of the mountain without really listening to the rest of what Ralph has to say. Because it's almost nighttime, it's almost evening, but everybody gets so excited about fire, they just run off up the mountain and they want to start this fire. And Piggy watches them all go, and Piggy's uh, observation is that they are like a bunch of kids. This is what he says in the novel. He says, they're, you're all like a bunch of kids. And this is going to be typical for Piggy, is Piggy is observing that if you're dealing with a whole bunch of kids that are you know, 12 years and younger, this order that you're trying to build, the rationality, is not going to work because they're all young kids. And so all the kids run up the mountain, and the order that we had tried to kind of start isn't really maintained very well. In this society, and in the world with only children and no grown-ups, the stability and order does not, does not sit very well. And why is that? Well, I mean, the answer to that is pretty simple. Well, maybe it's simple, or maybe it's complicated, but uh, where do we learn order from? How do, we, how do we maintain order, and what if, what if somebody is not taught order, which is what we're getting to? So the boys run to the top of the mountain, and they start a fire, and they start a fire by using Piggy's glasses. They use this knowledge this technology this symbolic item of piggy's glasses is used to start the fire but because the boys don't listen to piggy because they don't listen to reason they end up starting this gigantic bonfire and the and the gigantic bonfire spreads to the side of the mountain where they've gotten all this deadwood and what they end up doing in the end of chapter 2 is they end up burning an entire kind of half of the mountain. They end up burning it down because the fire gets out of control. And immediately at the end of chapter 2, you see this dichotomy. Because in chapter 1, you had Ralph looking at the island as this sort of paradise and all the all the tone and the tenor of the novel 
was green and beautiful and, you know, everything was paradise. There were birds fluttering around and the, the reflection of the sun on the boy's skin was very green and they were under the leaves of the trees and it was very beautiful. Now at the end of chapter 2, you have the boy's skin, the reflection is not green anymore. The reflection is coming through the setting of the sun and through the fire on the mountain. And suddenly the boy's skin, instead of looking kind of green and pretty, it is red and it is kind of menacing and aggressive and the boys are very excited about this fire they are the whole mountain catches on fire and it's not like they're terrified of it it is they're excited about it they see the fire and it excites them and it, and it kind of like uh it awakens in the boys even in ralph something very primal and exciting and instead of the paradise, you get this red reflection of, of fire and power and hell. And the, uh, the end of the chapter, Piggy becomes the voice of reason. And Piggy explains to the boys that this fire they have created is of no use because it's night now. There's no ships that are going to see it. We have burned up all of our best firewood on the side of the mountain because we lit the entire side of the mountain on fire and even worse and this is the end of chapter two that kind of sets the the sad tone of the novel um at the end of chapter two piggy asks the rest of them like uh, has have any of you seen the boy with the mulberry birthmark all of the little kids were on the side of the mountain gathering firewood and then they kind of lost interest in that and then they just started milling around and everybody kind of lost track of them and and piggy was supposed to keep track of them but none of them really respected piggy or accepted piggy's you know role as somebody who was in charge so they just scattered and now all of a sudden, the boys sit there looking at this entire half of the mountain that's on fire. And Piggy brings up this point of like, where are all the little ones? Where, where is the kid with the mulberry birthmark? Where are all, do we know where all the children are? Are some of them down there in the fire dying right now? And the only answer is, is kind of silence. There's no, there's no real answer from Ralph and the others. Um, the only thing that happens is they kind of try to shout him down. And uh, the end of that chapter is very dark. And you, you understand by the end of chapter 2 that it, it's very likely that the boy with the mulberry birthmark is dead. Because he was down on the side of the mountain that is on fire. It's not specifically said that he is dead, but it is heavily hinted at that he and other children have been consumed and killed by the fire. And so by the end of chapter two, the, the tone of the novel completely changes from kind of this, this bright sh sunshine paradise 
of of the Garden of Eden into very dangerous, fiery kind of the the prospect of hell is very real, and and the the prospect of children dying on the island is very real, and that is where chapter two ends, and that's where chapter two leaves us. And holy cow, I'm almost an hour in, and we're only to chapter two. So it's looking like, um, it's looking like this is going to be at least a at least a three parter at this point. So uh, so this is it. This is part one of the Lord of the Flies um, novel breakdown and analysis. The 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 Lord of the Flies book club. Um, I hope you read the novel. If you didn't read it, um, I hope that you'll you'll go back and read it now. Because, like I said, you can get this novel for free on PDF on the internet. Or even if you don't have it like that, I guarantee you, like, the odds of this book being available to you that you can read in paperback is, is pretty high. And if you don't have a copy of it in paperback, you can't get it from the library, you can't get it from anywhere else. It's like four bucks on Amazon. Even if you can't get it from any of those places, you can get it for free online. So, uh... I'm going to start releasing this, uh, I think, tonight. I'll probably upload this tonight. And then uh, I'll do part two in a day or two. And I'll... uh, It's probably going to be three parts. We'll do this... uh, We'll do this over the next week. We'll do two or three episodes to talk about Lord of the Flies. And hopefully if you didn't start reading it, maybe you do now. And that's the end of chapter two. That's where you are. And this will be Lord of the Flies, part one. I look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks for listening. Thank you for your time.